Welcome to the program. I'm Jeff Sheckman. Yesterday, the venerable New York Times got it all wrong. They said, and I'm quoting, on the Democratic side, an essential debate is underway between two visions that may define the future of the party and perhaps the nation. Not so. The only thing that will really define the future of either party and of the nation is the defeat of Donald Trump. And anything that stops short of focusing on that is a failure of imagination. In its editorial, the New York Times went on to say, and again I'm quoting, with a crowded field and with traditional polling in tatters, the calculation calls for a hefty dose of humility about anyone's ability to foretell what voters want. Wrong again. Focus groups, polling, campaigns still matter. They matter not just in the election, but in each individual election in the states that will matter in determining the Electoral College outcome. It's not a mystery. The methods today may be more modern, but campaigns for candidates, not unlike advertising for a product, if done right, will work. And that, not some vague nuance of policy, is the only thing that will defeat Trump. Here to help us try and explain and reinforce these ideas, I'm joined by Rick Wilson. Rick Wilson is a Republican political strategist, writer, speaker, and commentator. He's the author of the number one New York Times bestseller, Everything Trump Touches Dies, and he writes a must-read column for the Daily Beast. He writes for the Washington Post, Politico, Rolling Stone, the New York Daily News, and Bulwark. And it is my pleasure to welcome Rick Wilson here to talk about his newest book, Running Against the Devil. A Plot to Save America from Trump and Democrats from Themselves. Rick Wilson, thanks so much for joining us. Hey, thanks for having me, Jeff. Well, it's great to have you here. Talk a little bit first about the Democrats tending to overthink this and really looking for some magic formula when, in fact, running a campaign, running against your opponent is what they need to learn how to do. You know, this is, politics is a, is, is a hard but simple business. And in this case... The simplicity of this is that Americans, by and large, are ready for a change from Donald Trump. Um, the, about 60% of the country is, is unhappy with this guy um, and, and recognizes the risks he poses for our future. Um, but the, 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 the trick or the question here is can Democrats discipline themselves sufficiently in the coming months to run the campaign they have to run, not the one they want to run? And as a guy who for 30 years put together Republican campaigns at every level and who has got a, a, a what I call a trench historian's knowledge of, of the circumstances of Republican defeats of Democrats in many, many places and circumstances, um, there's, there's this, this sense that they have that they're going to win it with policy or with turning out the proverbial youth vote or all these other hypotheticals. And this book is about how to win and, and what's awaiting the Democrats in terms of the traps and the tricks the Republicans will pull on them. And I know a lot of those traps, traps and tricks because I helped invent them. I helped deploy them. I helped implement them for a very long time with very strong results for the GOP. Um, I have now become an apostate to that. I am now you know, on the outs of the Republican Party and, and doubtless will be forever because you know, I, I am going to stand up against Donald Trump what I'm trying to do with this book is to both warn folks that you've got to take this election very, very seriously, because the consequences are, are terrifying, um, but you've also got to run the campaign without presuming that you can do the things you're inclined to do as a Democrat, but rather the things you have to do. And so I'm, I'm, a lot of the response I've gotten so far has been extremely positive, 
Um, I, I've been, it's been very heartening that I've had a lot of Democrats, including some fairly senior people, reach out and go, you are absolutely on point. This is where we go wrong. This is where we screw it up. Um, and I'm hopeful that, that this book will be useful for folks to understand that I'm not trying to come in and reconfigure the Democratic Party's ideological priors. I'm just trying to help them get through this thing and not lose. Did the Democrats, though, get it right in 2018, certainly in the midterm elections when they had some success? Well, Donald Trump was a great help for them in the 2018 elections, and that's what won for them. It wasn't that they were unified ideologically. You elected a bunch of Democrats who were, frankly, many of whom were moderates. Um, so it wasn't this idea that the Democratic Party had gotten, you know, that, that, that for some reason a progressive sweep was caused uh, by some meritorious, you know, campaign strategy. The, the, the Democratic majority increased because they put people in who were right for their states and their districts. You know, Connor Lamb... Um, you know, Conor Lamb was elected in Pennsylvania in a place where AOC can't win or where Rashida Tlaib can't win. Um, but would you rather have that seat in the, in the hands of a moderate Democrat or no one, uh, you know, or, or a Trump person? So that's the question Democrats have to face in large measure is, do you want to try to satisfy all your ideological checklist items and run a campaign that works in New York or California um, and lose in Ohio and Florida and Michigan and, and Pennsylvania? Or do you run a smarter campaign that's much more disciplined, much more tightly focused, much less ideologically charged, and pick up those moderate and independent and suburban voters that have shown us in 2018 they'll come back to the Democrats because Trump makes them so unhappy and nervous and scared, um, or do you want to, you know, go for the purity posse test and lose, you know, 45 states? Why, in your view, is it so hard for Democrats to understand that? Is it, is it simply a lack of political talent on the part of a lot of their people, or, or at least this current crop of people? Or is there something else at the heart of it? You know, Joe, part of it is that they had two, in our lifetimes, two amazing generational candidates. Right. You had Barack Obama and you had Bill Clinton both of whom were among the best candidates who've ever run for president from either party. They were, they were men of tremendous political luck and skill, and, and they ran campaigns that made it look easy. And their campaigns were so powerful for so many reasons that it rolled over a lot of the problems Democrats have with, with, with electoral politics in this country, and it smoothed over some of the issues that ordinarily would have been a big challenge for them. So the, 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 the field, unfortunately, today does not have a generational superstar. There is not a Bill Clinton. There's not a Barack Obama. Um, and, and that's why their pathway is somewhat more narrow and somewhat more constricted and somewhat more risky than it would have been otherwise. And not having that, to what extent does that make the task so much more difficult for them? It really does, it really does up, the, up the risk factors of trying to pursue a campaign based on selling a policy. Um, because, look, Barack Obama didn't really sell policy as a candidate. This policy fit on a poster. Donald Trump didn't sell policy as a candidate. Again, fit on a trucker hat. So the idea that you're trying to sell, sell policy in the Democratic Party today is fraught with two big problems. The first is the progressive wing of the Democratic Party, nothing's ever big enough. 
You know, it's never enough spending. It's never enough government, uh, you know, expansion. It's never enough. So, so whatever moderate-sounding policy comes out that might be acceptable in these swing states gets crushed from the left, um, and 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 gets and gets you know belittled and, and reviled from the left side of the party, um, and it never looks big enough to change the, the to, to for them, and it and it then becomes caricatured by the right. So my advice to avoid policy is only it only extends until you win the election. You win the election, go talk policy all you want. Do all the policy things you want if you win the election. But until then, you know, it, it, it's not necessarily the way you win. Candidates, candidates often mistake this. They think that their plans are winning, but it's always them. It's always the personality. It's always the ethic. It's always the engagement with voters. Voters make their decisions based on whether or not they like the person in the end. And it's, it's, it's difficult for them to understand that. But look, Barack Obama was a profoundly likable candidate. Republicans knew it. We knew it all along. We know how likable the guy was. It was very scary for us. You know, and, and for Democrats, they hate this. But George Bush was a likable candidate. He was the likable candidate in the race. Donald Trump, for all his horrifying jerkiness, scanned as, as in some ways, more genuine. It was fake, but, but it scanned that way. And Hillary Clinton, who was so prepared all the time and so disciplined, so you know, nearly robotic in her answers, and she was always afraid of making a mistake, you know, at least Donald Trump felt authentic to them. So, but, but you know, none of these guys are going to be out winning this race based on a, on a 600-page health care plan. It's not going to happen. They're going to win by being the person who makes this a referendum on Donald Trump and is able to make the most compelling argument of why, where, why they're the best person for the country to replace him. What's shocking about this, politically speaking, historically speaking, is that if one looks at presidential races in particular, even more so than local races in in many cases, they're always a gut check. They're always about personalities. They're always about the way a candidate makes somebody feel. That has not that has not changed. The history of presidential politics is about exactly that. Why is it so hard for the Democrats to understand that? You know, it is it is a lesson that they that they have again, partly because they thought, oh, it was easy with Obama, it was easy with Clinton. Those were they, they were so natural, they were so great at politics, and and, and so they, they feel like this luxury item of of articulating policy that they they recognize are not always popular with the American voter. Um, it's something they want to come out and. And, and try to engage in, and it's, it's a temptation. I, I you know, I, I, I really argue in this book that I'm not trying to change the Democratic Party's, you know, ideological predicates or any of their positions. I'm just saying to them, for the love of God, don't do the stupid thing. Do the smart thing for once. Talk a little bit about the reminder that. This is not, on the other part of it, not a national election. It's really about 10, 12, 15 states. That's what the whole election rests on. Yeah, and and look, I list 15 states in this book that I believe are the key states and the key places that that are in play. Um, The reality is it's probably five or six of those 15 states. I offer some of those states up to Democrats as places they could go to, to work the electoral calculus a little differently if they feel like, you know, Florida or in Ohio is slipping away, they may have to go out and work a little harder, hustle a little harder in New Hampshire and Arizona. 
So this idea of, of a few key states, they all have one basic broad characteristic that is difficult for my Democratic friends to admit, and it's that these states are not woke. Michigan is not California. It is not Washington State. It is not Oregon. It is not Massachusetts. Florida, same story. Ohio, same story. These swing states, and this is one of the things I outlined in the, in the book, these swing states are places where Republicans have been very good at luring the Democrats into the, 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 the single worst move they can make, which is getting involved in, a, in the culture war politics of those states. And in some of those states, it's the fact that in Michigan and Ohio, you have enormous Democratic Catholic populations who are not as pro-choice as California or New York. You have rural Democratic men in North Florida and in western and northern Michigan who love guns, love them, and they will vote based on that issue. You have these things that, that, that will trick Democrats into believing that, that all of the country is just like the wokest part of Twitter or just like the most progressive part of California, and those things just aren't the case. And that's how one of the things that, that Republicans like me did for years, we went out and won races in places we had no business winning races because we recognized that there was a cultural differentiation that Democrats could not see. They could not admit to themselves that not everyone was as far to the left you know, as, as their friends on social media or their friends you know, in their fundraising circuit in major metropolitan areas. And so that is a big part of this campaign. I think it's vital the Democrats focus on that because if that's a sign of a hard political choice. You've got to make a hard political choice there. Do you tell your left-wing base, shut up, keep quiet, behave nicely for a few weeks, we've got to get through this, then we'll figure out policy once we win, or do you try to browbeat and yell and scream at these much more moderate voters, including more moderate Democrats? And by the way, the Democratic Party, nationally speaking, is not as far to the left as the Democratic Party, again, on social media and on, and on you know, television. Um, but do you tell them to, to, to be disciplined and focus and try to get to the win, or do you engage in this, you know, sort of hectoring, lecturing, oh, you dumb rubes from the, from the sticks, you have to follow along exactly as we believe. It's a really tough problem for a lot of Democratic um, candidates to face and a lot of Democratic consultants to admit to themselves that the country, and again, I know this because I helped use that loophole in people's psychology for years and years and years to win seats where Republicans had no business winning seats. There's another misconception, and maybe it isn't a misconception, it's just overstated that the Democrats have today, that somehow demographics, the changing demographics, will solve all of their problems. And it won't quite yet. Maybe someday it will, but not yet. You know, there will be a day when you have a majority Hispanic population in Texas. But it's not now, and it's not next year, and it's not a decade from now, and it's not even 20 years from now. These things are changing, but those changing demographics, there's a bit of, of hand-waving involved in that with a lot of Democratic consultants. And it's also the belief that, that each one of these demographic changes 
only moves in one linear direction and ratchets only one way. You know, I had a conversation with a Democratic consultant about Texas the other day, and he said, oh, well, all these Hispanics are coming up in Texas, and this and this and this. And I said, what's the fastest-growing church in Texas? What's the fastest-growing religious denomination in Texas? And he looked at me kind of cross-eyed. I said, the fastest-growing denomination are Hispanic-speaking evangelical churches. So if you think that every one of those voters who is of Hispanic origin rising up right now in Texas is going to universally be a progressive Democrat of the San Francisco, Los Angeles, Boston, New York mold, you might want to think again. So the demographics are both not as swift as people think they are, and they are also not as, uh, as one-dimensional as people think they are. How important is it for Democrats in order to be successful, to understand Donald Trump, what makes him tick and why he got elected? And a lot of them don't understand that yet. No, and, and one of the things they have to, I think, grapple with is that Donald Trump was elected because he had a reality TV show for 15 years. And Americans bought the character they saw on TV because TV is what shapes their knowledge. Even to this day, it's not just social media, it's not, it's not all these other outside ancillary issues. Television shapes the perception of reality for a very, very, very large percentage of American voters. And that reality is so completely um, uh, defining for most people, it's hard to shatter the image some people have of Trump in his support base. But the understanding of his psychology for the candidate is absolutely vital. And that psychology is of a man who is brittle, who has limited cognitive abilities. He's not smart, but he is crafty. And they have to understand that Donald Trump has no bottom. There's no, there's no place where Donald Trump gets better. There's no, there's no better angels of Donald Trump. There's no thing you can appeal to to make him ashamed or contrite or to change how he's going to behave. So they have to understand that this is a guy who will be in the fight of his life he will fight like a wild animal. He will fight dirty. And, and, and if they think they know what fighting dirty is, they need to rethink it immediately and go right back and imagine a worst-case scenario that's 20 times more dirty than what they think. That's how bad it's going to get. He will bring in the candidates, as he's proven with Joe Biden, he will bring in their children, their wives, their, their pets, their friends, their family. He will run the nastiest most negative, most reductive, most horrifying campaign you've ever seen in your life because he knows the only way he can win is if the Democrats make the mistakes that they tend to make and then, then he burns them to the ground and he will burn them to the ground. They will never stop. He will never relent. He's the terminator of shittiness. And the Democrats need to be focused on the fact that this will be the most negative campaign in history and if they're not swinging with the same energy and the same venom and the same dedication to knocking him down, he will win. But do they even know how to do that? Do any the of them know how to do it? <laughs> the jury is very the jury's very much out on that. And it's a shame. Because they need it. They need that kind of fight. And frankly, voters expect to see the, the, they expect to see a Democratic candidate 
who has some passion and some energy and doesn't get like lit up talking about, you know, well, on page 47 of my climate change plan, what they want to hear is, I am going to defeat this son of a bitch. I am going to crush him. He is a danger to our country. He's a danger to our children. He's a danger to our future. I will defeat Donald Trump. That's what they want to see. They want to see that energy. They want to see that commitment. They want to see that passion. And if they don't see it, and they see somebody who comes out and, and runs the checklist of my, my six-point plan here and my 12-point plan there, they're going to lose and lose badly. Which really raises the question that I have to ask, which is who in, in the compendium of candidates is even remotely <laughs> capable of that? Look, I have tried very hard in this book, and I tried very hard in my discussions about the book, to steer clear of being viewed as somebody who's trying to select the Democratic candidate. I'm really, really not trying to pick the Democratic candidate. Um, I think there are a couple candidates in the field who are absolute, who if I were still on the Republican side, I would be laughing my ass off if they nominate Bernie. It'll be the easiest, most bloody race in the history of politics. He will be the biggest loser since Walter Mondale. He won't top Mondale, but he'll lose 44, 45 states. It'll be, it'll be a wipeout. Um, and I, I, I say this for a host of reasons, but, and I know it'll trigger the Bernie bros out there, but it, 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 it is just a, a hard and painful fact. Um, but, look, I think you've got a lot of options in the field right now. I still think from the, from the fact that name ID has a certain magic in politics that cannot be disputed, that Joe Biden still has a very good shot at it. You know, he's got many, many flaws. They all have flaws. He's got many, many flaws. But I think he has a better-than-average shot at it. Uh, I, think, I think Amy Klobuchar, especially with the Times endorsement, you know, that sort of elevated her. That'll boost her up a little bit in these coming primaries. Um, I, I think you know, somebody like her who can speak American and who's from the Midwest and who isn't somebody who is you know, e as easy to caricature or pin down ideologically, um, I think she has a, a, a voice in this. Um, I think Warren and Bernie may have self-destructed each other. I think they may have they may have both triggered the uh, the meltdown, but I'm not sure yet. She has improved as a candidate significantly, um, but I don't know that she can deliver the punch in the end of the day. And that's that's a real open question for me. And I think Mayor Pete had a had a had a had a moment. I think he's going to have a future, but I'm not sure he's seen as somebody who can uh, who can take on this guy. And that, the, the idea that, you know, uh, as I say in the book, you know, kumbaya is not where we go anymore in politics. And people who are talking about reconciliation and love and all those things, that, that's not reading the terrain of this field, uh, I think, accurately. And finally, Rick, what is this election, however it plays out in the context of what we've been talking about, what impact does it have on what's left of or what constitutes today the Republican Party? Well, the Republican Party today is Donald Trump, and, and there, there is no party to speak of. There's, a, there's an organization of which Donald Trump is the sole beneficiary of its efforts. Um, so there are, you know, there are these small groups. Uh, there's a small group of us who are out here trying to you know, keep the flame alive, and I like to say we, we may be the last priests of a dying religion, but there are a few of us who still believe in the rule of law and the Constitution, and, you know, fiscal discipline and, and individual liberty. Uh, and, and it's a small group. I'm not, I'm not disputing this. We're, we're a, 
we're, we, we could get together in a decent-sized hotel conference room some days. Um, but, uh, you know, if Donald Trump wins, there will be no further Republican Party as we have known it. There will be a Trump Party. Um, and, if there, and if he loses, it's going to be a moment where I think that, that, that the right side of the political spectrum schisms into two organizations. One, it will be a nationalist, populist, Steve Bannon, Stephen Miller, Donald Trump-style party. And I think we, and if he loses, we will probably go back and have an opportunity as, as you know, old-school, legitimate conservatives to revisit what, what a Republican Party for the future would look like and feel like. If he does lose, it'll be an interesting morning after for Republicans. If he does lose, they're going to have a... Uh, they're going to have a, a level of shock that, uh, that, that was unimaginable, uh, you know, the, 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 as shocked as they were to win, I think they will be much more shocked if he is defeated. And it'll, it'll be a truly cataclysmic moment. But the Democrats have got to do an awful lot right between here and there. Rick Wilson, the book is Running Against the Devil, a plot to save America from Trump and Democrats from themselves. Rick, I thank you so much for spending time with us. You bet. Thanks, Jeff. Talk to you soon. Thank you.